look there in just a little bit. Now, there are a lot of things I love about meeting with all of you in a service like this. One of them is just what we just finished doing. How many of you understand when we come together as God's people, then we have a great privilege and opportunity, and that great privilege and opportunity is that we are able to bring worship to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are able to bring worship unto the God of all creation. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that the heavens are God's throne. If you believe that, say amen today. That he created the heavens and the earth, and he did it with only his spoken word. And you, I want you to think about the power that God possesses if he can speak and the stars come into existence. That's the God we're worshiping today. That is the God we can encounter today and experience today in his power and presence. And that's already happened this morning as we've entered into worship together. And so I love the fact that we're got, we've got the great privilege and opportunity of coming together to worship the Lord. And that's what Sundays are for. Can you say amen? The Bible teaches in the book in the, in the New Testament that Sundays is to be the day of worship. And so I'm glad today that we were able to come together and take advantage of the privilege of worshiping him. Another reason that I really love coming to services like this is because of all of you. Amen. You are my brothers and sisters in Jesus. You know what the Bible says? We are many members that make up one body. And all of us are growing together. All of us are working together to accomplish the purpose of the head. What's that mean? Well, that means as a member, I need you, and as a member, you need me. I need you, you need me. I need the church, the church needs me. We're all in this together. How many of you know you need the church, and the church needs you? Whoever you are, God has gifted you to be a part of what he wants to do through his local body. And so it's always a blessing to be able to come together and encourage and edify one another. I hope and pray that this morning I can encourage you and edify you. And this morning, many of you have already encouraged me and edified me. Amen. And so I love meeting with the people of God, with the family of God, with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's another reason why I love being a part of services like this. Let me give you, I'm not going to say my favorite one, but um, it's special to me as a pastor. See, I've got the privilege this morning of sharing with you the truth of God's precious, powerful word. And that always excites me. It humbles me. It scares me to death. <laughs> a lot of people ask, brothers, do you still get nervous when you speak? Absolutely, I still get nervous. It's nervous this morning. I don't, I don't want there to ever become a time when I'm not nervous. And, and it's not that I don't believe God won't do what he's promised to do because he hasn't failed me yet. He's always been right there with me every step of the way. And he gives me exactly what I need. And I'm so, I failed him many times. Don't misunderstand me. But he has never failed me. So it's not that I, I'm not confident that God will do exactly what he has promised. I'm certainly confident in him. But I also realize the responsibility I've been given. And that responsibility as your pastor is to share with you the truth of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm thankful for the opportunity, thankful for the great privilege, but I realize the responsibility. Because I want you to know God's word is real. And it's relevant for your life and for my life. 
God's word is real. God's word is relevant. God's word is ready to make a difference in your day-to-day living. And it will do that if you'll take God's truth that you glean from Scripture through services like this or Sunday school or your personal devotion time. If you'll take the truth of the Word of God and then, and then apply that truth into your life, then it will make a real difference with you. See God's Word. And that's what I love about being a pastor, about preaching the Word of God. Because I know as long as I give you God's truth, I'm going to help you. Because that's what God's Word does. God's Word is certainly supernatural. No doubt about it. It's Holy Spirit inspired and written down by men. But it's also very practical. It gives us practical applications for every sphere of our life. And if we'll take that and apply it, man, it makes all the difference. We can live the life that God has created us to live if we do it according to His Word. God's Word works if you work it. But you've got to work it. You've got to apply it to your life day by day, just as I do. So I'm thankful for the great privilege and responsibility of sharing with you the truth of God's Word. It will help you be what God wants you to be. It'll help you be a a, a godly father. It'll help you to be a godly mother. It'll help you be a godly wife and a godly husband. It'll help you to be a good friend. It'll help you to be, listen to me now, a good worker and a good witness. God's Word will help you in every aspect of your life if you'll take that truth and apply it. And I'm going to tell you something. What we find here this morning in Philippians chapter 4, I am convinced is necessary for you and for me if we're going to live a life pleasing unto the Lord. No doubt about it. Man, when I got a hold of this truth, it made all the difference in my life. It freed me up. This morning, I want to speak to you on the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment. Let's look. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse number 10. Watch what the Bible says. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Isn't that a good verse? The Apostle Paul says, In whatever state I find myself, I've learned contentment. And that's very important that we learn it. Verse 12, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He then says, Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all, and I abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God. But my God, watch what he says, shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. In glory by Christ Jesus. Verse 20. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and forever. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for, again for the truth of your word. And Lord, thank you for allowing me the great privilege of standing before an open Bible. Lord, you know that I can do nothing and I know it too. 
Lord, these people need not hear my opinions, my thoughts, but need to hear your word preached by your power, Holy Spirit. And I'm asking you to do that, to use me as your mouthpiece, to speak to me and speak through me, fill me up, pour me out. Use me, Lord, I pray for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' mighty name I pray and for your sake, amen. I'm a fan of boxing. I love the sport of boxing. One of my favorite things to do is to watch some of the old fights because I believe the old fights are probably some of the best fights. My favorite are the fights of Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali back in the early 1970s. They had three of the best boxing matches um, that, that I've ever saw, and, and I really enjoy watching those. Another one that I really like is um, the one by, that was between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. It happened in 1974 in Zaire, Africa. Some of you remember the name that Ali gave it. He gave it the name, the Rumble in the Jungle. Y'all remember that? Some of you remember it. If you're not old enough to remember it, you've probably heard of it. Very popular. I would encourage you to go back um, later today and watch some of that fight. Man, it was really good. It's not but eight rounds. Um, it, it ended in the middle of the eight. But it, it's a really great fight. Now, Ali, at the time that he fought George Foreman in 1974, was actually a little bit past his prime. I mean, he had already uh, spent, been uh, fighting a long time. He had been the heavyweight champion once, then that title was stripped from him because he refused to, be, uh, to go into the draft. And, and because of all of that, um, he wasn't able to box for a few years there. So he was kind of over the hill and already had two amazing uh, bloody wars with, uh, with Joe Frazier up to this point. The third flight would be in 1975. The first two fights with him and Frazier were, um, like I said, just a bloody battle. And so he has already passed that. Now he's with Foreman. He's a little bit on the backside of his career at this point. Now, that's not the case with George Foreman. George Foreman was an Olympic gold medalist in the heavyweight division as an amateur. And then when he became a professional fighter, had won every fight that he had fought. He was the undisputed, undefeated heavyweight champion of the world when he entered the ring in 1974 in the Rumble in the Jungle. And everybody thought that George Foreman was going to win. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the video footage, you will see that this brother was a mountain of muscle. I mean, this dude was in shape, um, had amazing power in his left and in his right hand. I think it was Joe Frazier that was quoted as saying Foreman had beat Frazier for the title, um, I think, about two years earlier. And uh, Frazier was quoted as saying, if George Foreman hits you with his left, it'll put you in the hospital. If George Foreman hits you good with his right, it'll put you in a hearse. He knew just how powerful Foreman was with each hand, and he knew how to use them. And so uh, everybody thought that knew anything about boxing that Foreman was just going to wipe the floor with, with Ali. And he was a huge favorite in the fight. He was bigger, he was stronger, he was a lot younger, and um, everybody thought it was his time. And so the fight starts, and Muhammad Ali didn't start like he normally did. He employed a strategy that he later called the rope-a-dope. He had a way of naming things. I mean, that dude could talk. But he called it the rope-a-dope for a reason. Let me tell you what, it, what happened. For seven rounds... Ali laid on the ropes and invited Foreman to pretty much pummel his body. And that's what Foreman did. He accepted the invitation. 
I mean, Ollie would, would just cover up and lay up against the ropes, and Foreman would come in and slug him to the body and to the arms with everything that he had. And after he backed up for a minute, minute Ollie would then lay back against the ropes and watch the video, you'll see it. He'd smile at him and motion him to come on in. And, and that's exactly what Foreman would do over and over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, Foreman, uh, he was quoted. Let me read it for you. I watched an interview with him just a few days ago, and he said something that, uh, that tickled me. He said, Ali was content with just laying on the ropes for seven rounds while I beat on him like a crazy man. And that's exactly what Foreman did. Like a crazy man, um, he went in there and beat on his ribs and the side of his arms for seven rounds until he pretty much just wore himself out. And then Foreman said in the middle of the seventh round, Ali reached over and whispered in his ear during an exchange, and he said, is that all you got, George? And George thought to myself, yeah, that's pretty much all I got. <laughs> and in the middle of the eighth round, Ali hit him with a crushing right hand, dropped him to the mat, and won the heavyweight championship of the world. Now, I love what Foreman said. It's so true. He said, that Ali was content with laying on the ropes while I beat him like a crazy man. But how many of you know? It was because of that contentment in the midst of the beating that he later was victorious. How many of you have ever felt as though you're in a heavyweight punching match with life itself? Maybe you feel like you've been beat on a little bit. Things ain't went just like you thought it ought to go. Maybe you've had more downs than ups as of late. Maybe you're discouraged and depressed. Maybe you feel like you're in the midst of the fight of your life. What is the answer? What's the secret to come through whatever you're facing victorious? Well, the secret is that of contentment. See, Ali was content in good times when he was holding his hands in victory at the end of the fight, but he was also content in the bad times when he was taking those body shots in the third round. He was content when the midst of the beating, and folks, the, the truth is, I don't care who you are, all of us are going to go through some beatings in life. I mean, things this thing going to always go our way. If you've not entered into some hard, harsh circumstances and situations yet, believe me, just hang on a little bit. It's coming to you as well. It happens to us all. And if we're not careful, we can allow life to beat us down. So this morning, I want to talk to you about the secret, secret of walking through those times, in good times or in bad, and remaining victorious. Well, the secret, I believe, is contentment. What is contentment? Well, Paul talks about it here in Philippians chapter 4. I want to give you my definition of contentment. Contentment is being unmoved by external circumstances and situations because of the soul satisfaction on the inside. Now listen, those circumstances, either neither positive or negative, can affect that soul satisfaction. 
it, we don't focus on the external, but we rest in the internal, the satisfaction of every soul that finds peace in Jesus. The satisfaction of every child of God who realizes God is at work in their life according to his purpose. How many of you know that the Bible promises God causes for every believer all things to work together for our good and his glory? Do you know that? Do you realize as a child of God, the, the, those who have been blood-bought and born again into God's family through faith in Christ, do you know this morning that you are the adopted son of Almighty God himself? You are the adopted daughter of, of the creator of the universe? And if that's true for you today, everything that happens in your life had to come across God's desk before it came to you. Now that can mess with us a little bit. Because we do have, enter into some tough seasons. But God is so good, so gracious, so sovereign that he can take even the bad times and turn them around for our good and his glory. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what I have experienced. And that's exactly what's going on in Philippians chapter 4 with the Apostle Paul. If God can do it for him, can he do it for us? Thank you, sister. If God can do it for him, can he do it for us? If God can do it for him, can he do it for us? See, the word of God, the, the truth of the Bible, is not what God has said, but what God is saying. It's not what God did do, but what God can do in your life. We need to take this truth and apply it unto ourselves and walk in contentment regardless of what we face through external circumstances. Realizing that our soul is satisfied in the Lord. Now, if your soul is not yet satisfied in the Lord, I have, to, I have to tell you today, I have to warn you today, you will never truly find satisfaction and contentment in this life because there are a lot of things that promises satisfaction or contentment. There are a lot of things that people tell us will give us satisfaction and contentment that will never give it. They'll never get it. For us to really understand the secret of contentment, to figure out what contentment really means to us, we got to figure out what contentment is not and how contentment is not found. So let me give you just three or four of those. First of all, contentment can never be found in prosperity. It's never going to happen. No matter what the world tells you. You say, Brother, does that mean that, that I'm not supposed to be prosperous? Does that mean I'm not supposed to, listen, make money and have nice things and be successful? No, that's not what it means at all. I don't believe that uh, for, for one moment. The Bible doesn't teach that. Can you say amen? As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people in the Word of God that were very wealthy that God used greatly. One of them was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Some of you remember Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy businessman in Jerusalem who was also a follower of Christ. At the time when Jesus was crucified, it was Joseph of Arimathea who allowed Jesus to borrow a tomb. There's a reason for that. Listen to me. Jesus only needed to borrow a tomb 
because he wouldn't go use it long. He only used it for three days. Praise the Lord. He didn't need it forever. He wasn't going to use it forever. All he needed was to pay for the sins of mankind at the cross. His blood was shed there. And then the Bible says he was buried and then he rose again. In three days after being buried, Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave so that everyone who would trust in him can also defeat death, hell, and the grave. Joseph of Arimathea allowed him to borrow a tomb. If not for the work of that man, Joseph, then listen, uh, he played a big part in the finished work of Christ. Would you agree with that? No doubt about it. Very wealthy man, very successful man. There's another one in Acts chapter 16, a lady by the name of Lydia. The Bible says that she was a seller of purple. To To say that she was a seller of purple means that she sold fine garments. She had a wealthy, she was a wealthy woman who was very successful in her business of selling fine linens, silk, garments that that people who had money would, would pay a lot of money for. And the Bible says that when Paul and the missionary team came to Philippi, it was there with Lydia and other ladies in the town that a prayer service was going on. And I believe those ladies were praying for. God's truth to come to them. I believe those ladies were praying for the truth of the gospel. I believe those ladies wanted what God had for them. And when they wanted what God had for them and they began to pray about it, God said, okay, if you want it, you can have it. And he sent Paul and the missionary team their way to give them the revelation of who Jesus was, who Jesus is. And in the moment that they got there, the Bible says Lydia was saved and baptized her and all her household. That means her servants that she had in her home. She had a big home. She had a lot of servants. She was very wealthy. She got saved, baptized, and God used her in the beginning of the church at Philippi. It was actually in her house that they continued to meet and have services. So what I'm telling you is nothing wrong with being prosperous, nothing wrong with having possessions, nothing wrong with being ambitious and working hard. As a matter of fact, the Bible says this, whatever God puts in your hands to do, do it as you're doing it unto the Lord. So when you go to your workplace, remember, you're not working for the man, you're working for Jesus. You're not working for your boss ultimately even though you should respect him or her. You're not ultimately working for them but as a believer everything I do can become an act of worship. So when I go to my workplace and I put up a stop sign I want to do it to the best of my ability. Why? Because I realize as a Christ follower everything I do becomes an act of worship to him. I want to do it as I'm doing it under the Lord. So the Bible teaches to work hard and be ambitious and the Bible teaches to do well in the things that God gives you to do. Nothing at all wrong with doing any of that. Becoming prosperous, having possessions, gaining riches. Nothing wrong with having possessions, but there is something greatly wrong when your possessions have you. When that becomes what drives you. When that becomes what you live for. There's something greatly wrong with people believing 
that possessions and prosperity will ultimately bring you the satisfaction and contentment that you desire because it will not. Just to stay with the boxing analogy, let me give you something that Mike Tyson recently said in an interview I watched. Mike Tyson, another great heavyweight, he said this. He, the, the, the guy who was interviewing him, he said unto Mike Tyson, or at least implied unto Mike, that because of all the money that Mike had made in his boxing career, he ought to be one of the happiest humans on the face of the earth. And, and Tyson looked at him and said something I'll never forget. He said, if you think making a lot of money will make you happy, then you've never made a lot of money. And he's right. Allow me to quote... He certainly is not a great theologian, but what he said makes a lot of sense. His name is Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger said something in a song years ago. He said, I can't get no what? Why? I remember I said that one time. Nobody would say nothing. We ain't, we ain't telling the preacher we listen to the Rolling Stones. <laughs> so thank you for your participation. So Mick Jagger, he said, I can't get no satisfaction. Now listen, I think he's telling the truth. Here you have a man who's made all the money he could ever spend, been on the top of the charts, I think they're in their mid-70s now. Been touring for over 40 years and still on tour. Now listen, having everything the world has, and what's he say? I can't get no satisfaction. There was an album cover that they had years ago with a plane in the background that had the Mick Jagger lips on it. That meant this, this band was so successful, so rich, so powerful, they had their own Learjet to take them to wherever they wanted to go. But still, he's up there singing, I can't get no satisfaction. He's right. It's not about prosperity. It's not about possessions. Those, nothing wrong with having those things, but those things will never truly bring you contentment and satisfaction that you're seeking for. You say, brother, if it's not prosperity, maybe it's poverty. Well, let me give you that. It's not poverty either. <laughs> I will say this. Some of the most loving, faithful Joyful believers I've ever been around in my life are in abject poverty. I remember when we went to Haiti. Haiti's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And some of the most joyful, Christ-loving, Christ-honoring people I've ever met in my life were in Haiti. And they were so poor, some of them didn't have clothes to put on their back. And a lot of them that I met never even knew where their next meal was coming from. But they loved Jesus with all their heart and the joy of the Lord just exuded from them. You know those top folks? Walking in the power and strength of Christ. Loving God and loving people even though they had nothing. Now let me say something to you. I've been poorer than I am now. I'm still not rich by a long shot. Now, I'm thankful for everything that God has blessed me with. Can you say amen to that? And you ought to be thankful too. I'm not rich by a lot of people's standards. I tell people all the time, I may not be rich, but I'm blessed. 
Brothers and sisters, I am blessed. Praise God for who he is and for what he's done. I'm so thankful for all that God's given me. Don't misunderstand me. I, am, I have been poorer than I am now. And I'll tell you this. I'd rather have money than not have it. Poverty will certainly not bring you contentment. A lot of people think that if you're going to really be right with God and serve the Lord and be what God wants, you, you just can't have nothing. That God don't want you to have nothing. That'll keep you humble. I've actually heard people make that argument. No, no, no. Listen to me. Listen to me, folks. Money is neutral. It's what you do with money that shows where your heart is. Jesus said where your treasure is, your heart will be what? Also. Amen. So true contentment is not found in prosperity. And let me say something, it's not found in poverty. Let me give you another one. True contentment is not found in people. A lot of people think, well, man, if I can just find that right person, you know, my, my right significant other for me. I mean, if I can just find them, then I'll be content. Then I'll be satisfied. You're putting way too much pressure on flesh and blood. Let me tell you something. I'm a happy married man. I've got a beautiful wife who's not just beautiful on the outside, she's beautiful on the inside. And because she loves Jesus with all her heart, she knows how to love her husband and love her kids. And I'm so stinking proud of her. But you know what? I don't find my satisfaction in her. And I don't want her to find her satisfaction in me. That's too much pressure on me and that's too much pressure on her. Let me tell you why. Because neither one of us can meet that standard. I'm going to fail her. She's going to fail me. We both are going to fall short. So I am not, I don't find my contentment in her. And she don't find her contentment in me. And you'll not find your contentment in people. Whether it be a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, or best friend. Contentment, true contentment, is not found in people. Let me prove it to you. Go to the book of 2 Timothy with me, please. 2 Timothy chapter number 4. This is Paul's swan song. He's at the end of his life. He's about to be executed for preaching the gospel, for sharing about Jesus. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he writes to whom he calls his young son in the faith, Timothy. And he says in verse number 9, Do thy diligence to come to me shortly. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved the present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, and Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Let me tell you what Paul is saying. All of these men who were once on my missionary team that I thought would stick with me through thick and thin, that I thought would always be with me, the moment I needed them most, they forsook me. I am not trying to be cynical. I'm not trying to in any way hurt relationships. I'm just being real with you. And the truth is, a man on his best day is still a man. And a man will fail you. I don't care if he's in the pulpit or in the pew. And, and listen, as you pastor... I'm not, I want to let my yes be yes. I want to let my no be no. I want to do what I say I'm going to do. I want to do all that. But the truth is, 
even when I try my best, there are times I can still fail you. And every man will. So you need to understand you'll never try find true contentment and satisfaction in what a man can do for you. Amen? It just won't happen. It's not found in prosperity, certainly and found in poverty. It's not found in people. Let me tell you something else. It's not found in power. It's not found in power. A lot of people think, well, if I can just keep climbing the ladder of success, if I can get on the top rung of the social ladder, if I can have all people looking up to me in the place that I want to be, in the place of importance, then I'll be content. Then I'll have all that life has to offer. The truth is, a lot of times that brings more heartache than it will ever bring peace. Just don't work that way. Paul said this in Philippians chapter number three. Um, go, go over there with me, brother, if you will. Um, put this on the screen. Philippians chapter three and verse number four. Watch what he says there. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath world that he might trust in the flesh, I the more circumcised the eighth day, watch, of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew among Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. So what Paul is saying is, I held a great deal of importance in the high circles that I ran in in the Jewish religion. Everybody respected him. He was born to the right people. He was taught in the best schools. He stood for all the things that a Pharisee should stand for. Let's go on. He says then, concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law. He said, I was blameless. He said, I was popular for, for, uh, among everybody because I was persecuting the Christian church. And at that time, the Jews were vehemently against the church, the new way. Matter of fact, the same ones that crucified Jesus, Paul was in cahoots with before he got saved. And so he was going around persecuting this new way of believing, this new way of worshiping uh, the, the, the followers of Christ, and everybody loved him for it. This man was in the top circles, the upper echelon of the muckety-mucks of the Jewish religion. Are you getting what I'm saying? But watch what he says. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Isn't that awesome? Paul said, I realized the money and the power and the prestige, all of that really meant nothing because even though I had that, I didn't have contentment. Even though I had that, I still wasn't satisfied. Even though I had religion, it still didn't make me right. Even though... I was doing all of this stuff that everybody was praising me for. There was no peace in it. There was no power in it. So I count all of it for loss for Christ. Look at the next verse. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. You know what Paul says? I give it all up for Jesus. And it's worth it. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, I do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Dung means rubbish, garbage. Dung speaks of the substance that comes out of a southbound, the south end of a northbound mule. You get what I'm saying? Paul says, I count it 
as nothing, waste. Because Jesus gives me exactly what I need. Fast forward to Philippians chapter 4, and he says, In all things, I've learned to be content. Why? Because his contentment don't come in things or people or power or prestige. His contentment, his satisfaction comes in Jesus. <laughs> Amen? There's a message that God gave me a few years ago. And I entitled it, When the American Dream Turns Into a Nightmare. And I think that happens a lot. We've got the idea that if we work hard enough and become successful enough and make enough money and have enough things and, and, and we have the big house on the hill and a nice car and, and a full bank account and all of that stuff works just like it's supposed to that somehow then we're really going to be content. We're really going to be happy. We're really going to be fulfilled. And the truth is people work their whole lives to get that. And they'll work so hard that they will ruin many relationships and burn bridges across the, uh, along the way that they never should have burned to get to that place where they think they'll finally be happy. And when they get there, they're still just as miserable as they ever were. Why? Because that stuff will never bring contentment. And that American dream then comes and turns into a nightmare. And you're like Tyson said, if you think money makes you happy, you've never made a lot of money. Are you getting it? And so what is the secret of contentment? Very quickly, let me give you three things that I'm doing. Number one, the secret of contentment is found in the overruling providence of God himself. You say, Brother, what are you talking about, the overruling providence of God? How many times have I told you that my God is so good, my God is so powerful, my God is so sovereign and in control, he can get a straight lick with a crooked stick. He can work things out in hardships that we can't fix in good times. God in his providence works in ways that we can't even fathom. You remember the story of Joseph, don't you? You remember how Joseph, because of the uh, jealousy of his brothers, his brothers envied him so much because of the love of his father that they sold Joseph into slavery to the Egyptians. And when he got to Egypt, God did such a work in his life that he brought Joseph from the, the dungeon, literally, from the slave market. He brought Joseph from there to be in the second in command of all Egypt, the most powerful uh, civilization in the world at that time. He brings Joseph to second in command, and then what happens? There was a famine in the land of Israel. And so Joseph's brothers come to the Pharaoh to get some grain because they didn't have any. They were, all their crops had dried up. They were about to starve. And when they get there, guess who they talk to? The brother Joseph. The problem was they ain't seen him in a long time. They didn't recognize him. Amen. And so Joseph looks at them. And, and to make a long story short, he actually does give them some grain and makes a deal with them to bring their father back and, 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 and works all of it out so he can reveal to them who he is, that he's actually their brother, that they sold into slavery years earlier. 
And he says in Genesis 45 and 5, he said, what you did to me, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. (laughs) See, sometimes it feels like we're getting beat up on because people mean evil to us. They meant it for evil. They planned evil our way. They wanted to tear down who we are and what we stand for. They meant it for evil. But the good news is, God is so sovereign, He can mean it for good. He can flip the script and turn it around. Contentment, my contentment comes in the providence of of God himself. Because why? He's my heavenly father. He's promised to love me and never leave me nor forsake me. He's promised to cause all things to work together for my good and his glory. Amen? That's what happened with Paul. You know when Paul is writing this letter to the book to, uh, to the Philippian church, it's called one of the prison epistles for a reason. He wrote four of them. Philippians, Colossians, uh, Philemon, and Ephesians were all wrote as prison epistles. He wrote them while in a Roman prison cell. And while he writes this letter, he's sitting under Roman guard. Through the providence of God, Even though others meant it for evil and put him in prison, he sat there and wrote most of the New Testament. A New Testament that has been changing lives ever since. A New Testament that the modern church is based upon. How is that possible? Because God is sovereign. How can Paul be content? Because like he says in Philippians chapter 2, what others meant for evil, God has turned around for good and it's fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. He said, they put me in prison and now I'm preaching to those in Caesar's household. Go back and read in Philippians. The gospel had made it all the way to Caesar because Paul sat in a prison cell. Why? Because God is sovereign. Because of the providence of God. The same God who was at work in Paul's life is at work in our life. You can be content. Don't allow the fight that you're in the midst of to keep you from being content in the overruling providence of God. Don't I want you to see the overruling providence of God, but I want you to see the unfailing power of God. Look at verse number 11 of, of Philippians chapter 4. Brother, put that up, please. Philippians 4, verse 11. Watch how he puts it here. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He says, I know both how to be abased or to have nothing, not even have my basic needs. And I know how to abound and have everything I need and more than enough. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He said, regardless if I'm prosperous or I'm in poverty, I still have contentment. Now watch. Why? Because of the power of God. I can do all things. I can be abased and have nothing. I can abound and have everything I need and then some. I can do all things. How? Why? Through Christ who strengthens strengthens me. My contentment is found in the unfailing power of God. Amen? My contentment as a believer is also found in the unwavering provision of God. 
He is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord who provides. Here you have Paul sitting in this Roman prison. Lacking the things he needs to fulfill his purpose. And a church in Philippi that he started on a missionary journey. You remember the story where he was imprisoned and whipped and beaten, thrown in the dungeon and at midnight he sang praises to God. And to quote Elvis Presley, a whole lot of shaking was going on. I've got an Elvis Presley quote, a Mick Jagger uh, quote, a quote from Mike Tyson, and a quote from George Foreman all in this sermon. Now listen to me. This church at Philippi sent unto Paul his need at right the right at just the right time. Has that ever happened to you? Boy, I'm telling you what. I am it never ceases to amaze me how God will provide for his people at just the right moment. In a way like only God can do it. Where it can't be questioned. That's what Paul is saying. Look at verse number 14. He says, Notwithstanding you have well done that you did communicate with me my affliction, you've, you've seen to my need. Oh, church, let's see to the needs of the people of God. Can you say amen? Notwithstanding you have done well done. Go to the next verse. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning the giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in these in Thessalonica sit once and again into my necessity. Now watch. Not because I desire gifts, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things you sent. I can just see this. Man of God sitting in his prison cell and maybe he's got to the place where he's got discouraged and he thinks, Lord, here I am. I've done everything you asked me to do. I've been faithful to what you called me for the reason you saved me. And now I'm in this prison cell all along. And right at the right moment, God sends this care, care package from the church that loves Jesus and loves Paul. The unwavering provision of God. Why am I content? Because of God's providence. Why am I content? Because of God's power. Why am I content? Because of God's provision. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holding to Jesus, trusting in his name. Listen, my contentment, my satisfaction is in him, is yours. Is yours. If not, why don't you trust him today? Oh, listen. He's good. He's good. He's gracious. He's loving. He's done everything necessary for you to know the God of all creation through his finished work. 
true satisfaction is found in him. We used to sing an old song, old hymn song. When my soul is resting in the presence of the, you remember that? I'll be satisfied. Remember? Now, I understand what the writer is saying, but he's wrong. I completely disagree with what he just said. When my soul is resting in the presence of the Lord, what he's saying is, in the sweet by and by, years on down the road, when I finally die and go to heaven, then I'll be satisfied. What? Then? Why do you want to wait till then? See, as a child of God, you're in his presence now. He dwells in you. Christ is in you and you are in Christ. He lives in me in the person of the Holy Spirit. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. It's not in the sweet mind by I'll be satisfied. I'm satisfied and content right now. Why? Because his providence, his power, his provision. The secret of contentment is a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody stand together.